Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. I'm reading from Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Thank you, Miriam. Hello. Good morning, folks. How are you all doing? Right. For the rest of you who didn't respond, what happened? You know, broke out on the wrong side a bit. Things didn't go well, huh? Hope things get better uh, shortly. But uh, folks, uh, do you all notice uh, we have someone new leading worship uh, this Sunday? Come on. Well, not new. New, but yet old. Old not as in H-O, but, but she did it before O. Uh, and so Christine is back on the worship team. Uh, so it's good to have her back. And so uh, please uh, encourage her, you know, and we want to... Uh, have her back uh, more often as well. Well, folks, uh, we are on week two of our sermon series, Life Together, but before we get to that, I have a quick uh, announcement for you. Now, um, as many of you uh, are aware, you know, we uh, did an AGM uh, a few, uh, not a few, a couple months ago where we gave some updates about uh, the church uh, uh, pertaining to our finances, but also with regard to where we meet uh, here in this space. Uh, there were some pertinent updates we covered in the AGM and uh, some things uh, that we uh, you know, have been deliberating and considering and uh, want to uh, present uh, to our community. And now we've uh, deliberated on what's the best way to get that information out, uh, as well as to uh, have dialogues where it's necessary. And so we've landed on this. Uh, so next Sunday, uh, we'll be taking a pause from our sermon series, and having essentially what I would like to call a family talk. Uh, family talk. And so uh, service next Sunday will look like this. You know, we will come together, we will worship together, but for the time that we usually spend uh, diving the God's Word together, we would uh, present uh, some updates uh, to the church. Uh, and now the updates will cover uh, what's happening, uh, what's happening with our church right now, the life of community, our finances, uh, also regards to our lease in this space. Uh, we'll talk about you know, where we are going, you know, what plans do we have, and what things are on the docket uh, that's before us as a community. And then lastly, we'll talk about what we need, what we need from our community uh, for the next season, the next leg, uh, the, the next chapter in the story that God is writing uh, in and through the city. And so, of course, you know, it's not a usual Sunday. We value God's Word, value going to Scripture together, learning, hearing the heart of God. Uh, but we thought, you know, in the life of community, it's really important at this stage for us to take a pause and uh, just have an honest family conversation. And so that's, that's going to be happening next week. And so next week, uh, there'll be no broadcast, uh, but the sermon, the sermon, the session will be recorded. Uh, we will make available a platform for you to drop in your questions uh, prior to Sunday. It's going to come up uh, during uh, the week. Now, uh, if you do not call the city home, you're visiting, uh, and, and you know, you're just exploring, uh, you know, that 
service is optional for you, but you're more than welcome to come. Uh, we'll have like a, a notice up on our site that says, you know, newcomers, like we love you, but maybe come the following week with, with it's more pertinent uh, to you. But uh, for, for the rest of y'all, who call the city home. Uh, this is your community. You have a stake here. You love this church. You love what God is doing in this church. I want to highly encourage you uh, to come, to come and hear uh, what are some of the needs and, 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 uh, and things that we're facing as a church and how can we as a community band together uh, to surmount some of these, but also dream together and discern God's will for us as a church, right? So next Sunday, family talk. Are you all with me? Yeah. Yes, yeah? Right. You know, if you all respond well during sermon, we may even make available some scones, you know. Family talk. Wow. Wow. That was a loud woo. That was a loud woo. That was a louder woo than the, the scripture reading. Amen. But, but I forgive you because I like scones too. <laughs> awesome. All right. Staff, you all know where to get scones. Uh? I don't know where to get scones. I can try and bake some, but... Uh... Y'all might not come the next week because y'all have diarrhea. But. Okay, I have a lot of ground to cover. Are you with me, folks? Yeah. Oh, but all good ground. Now, uh, you know, as we explored last week on this uh, theme of life together, this uh, series on community, we talked about what it means for the church to be a family. Now, family sounds like this feel-good kind of idea, but it's actually really strong, especially when we understand the concept, the structure of a family, especially in the first century context. Now, family was this close, deep bond that took priority over all other bonds. And this call for the disciples of Jesus to live together, to view each other as brothers and sisters, as a Delphoi, the family of God, was so much stronger than gathering around preferences, so much stronger than gathering around whatever's comfortable or convenient but it called for them to live sacrificially, to live out agape love, the God kind of love, this self-emptying, self-giving kind of love. And we want to be such a community, don't we, right? We don't want to treat the church just as an event we attend or a building or a program. We want to view the church as the people of God, as a community that we are all called to participate in, don't we, right? Okay, six of you, right? It's okay, we have seven weeks to go. Seven weeks. I'll get you there. Um, and so that's what we explored last week. And so we're just carrying on this theme. And over the next few weeks, uh, we'll be exploring certain values and certain traits we believe are distinctive, uh, not just to the people of God, but to us as the city community. What does it mean for us to live out God's calling on our church, on our lives in a faithful manner, especially in the midst of you know, this secular culture where we're facing all sorts of cultural pressures to compromise, to capitulate? What does it mean to be the people of God in our world today. Now, the sociologist Rodney Stark, who wrote this book, The Rise of Christianity and the Triumph of Christianity, he notes this, that the growth of the early church is arguably the most remarkable sociological phenomenon in human history. Right, in AD 40, there were roughly 1,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. But by AD, 30, AD 350, there were almost 30 million. Right, and so in the span of some 300 years, Christianity grew from 1,000 believers to over 30 million. And a remarkable 53% of the Roman population had converted to the Christian faith. And this was pagan society. And 53% of them would follow Jesus. Now in, the, in his book, he writes this about Jesus. He was a teacher and a miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee often preaching to outdoor gatherings, 
A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so became his devoted disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than 700. He asked this question then, how was it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world? How did this happen, right? Jesus didn't have a lengthy ministry, numbered about three years. He lived in the middle of nowhere, and yet Christianity, in, in some sense, brought the Roman Empire to its knees. And then when you take a step back and observe who Jesus chose to found, to, 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 to start the church, it seems even more implausible, right? The disciples were untrained men who failed as often as they thrive. That's my life theme. Fail as often as I thrive. Peter kept returning to fishing. James and John want, wanted to call on fire on the very people that Jesus came to save. Pretty counterintuitive, if you ask me. Thomas doubted and Judas betrayed him. The early church didn't have the things that we consider essential for church today, right? They didn't have official church buildings, no vision statements, no core values. They didn't have social media. Can you imagine that? They didn't have celebrity pastors with their fancy sneakers. They didn't have live stream services. They didn't even have the completed New Testament. And all of this raises significant questions, doesn't it, right? How could a Jewish political rebel crucified on a Roman cross become the savior of the very empire that killed him? What on earth could compel more than half of this empire to convert, to follow him? Now, Stark concluded in his book, right? I know most of you wouldn't crack the book, but spoiler alert, he concluded in his book that the early church did so through love. Love for God love for their neighbor, love for their enemies, love for each other. Justin Martha and early apologies of Martha had this to say about the early church community. We who value above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have into a common stock or common fund and communicate to everyone in need. We who hated and destroyed one another and on account of their different manners would not live with men of a different tribe. Now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies. As one order said this about the Christians, they love each other even before they know each other. It's like a Savage Garden song, doesn't it, right? <laughs> I knew I loved you before I met you. 90s, right? Sorry, you 2000 kids, you probably don't know Savage Garden. Um, now, the witness of the early church community was that they were a people profoundly touched, inspired, and transformed by the power of the gospel. They loved each other in such an otherworldly manner that the only probable explanation was that something out of this world must have happened to them. This is the early church transformed by the power of the gospel into a community of love, deep, robust love, beyond just feelings. It was a people who had grown to live sacrificially, had grown to love their enemies. Yet, in modern day, a recent Barner survey found that a majority of self-identified Christians today, some 52%, though they believe that there is more to the Christian life than they have experienced, they would say that their lives have not been changed at all as a result of going to church. And so if church attendance isn't bringing about this transformational work that we are reading about, especially you know, in the book of Acts and accounts of the early church, then what is going to work? If church attendance is not going to cut it, how are we then to be formed into a people of love, a people transformed by the Spirit and the gospel? 
And so my sermon title this week is both a title as well as my thesis statement, and this is this. Community is where we are transformed. Community is where we are transformed. And the big idea is this, that God wants to transform us. He wants to form us into His image, right? We talked about that often, this idea of spiritual formation, people gradually growing into the image of Christ, His practices, His virtues, the way He lives, the way He interacts with the world. We want to be a people formed into the image of Christ. This is our very vision statement. We don't want to be a people that just learns and grows to enjoy God's presence. We don't want to be a people that just does, you know, social justice stuff, you know, works that, that help the poor. Those are good and essential. But we also want to be a people that gradually grow into the image of Christ. To live as our Savior did, to look more and more like Him. The big idea is here that one of the primary ways that God transforms us, one of the primary ways that we are conformed into the image of Christ is through our participation in biblical community. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Let's begin a word of prayer as we jump into this. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, we thank you for your presence that's in this place. We don't want to take it for granted or treat it lightly. Jesus, you're here not just as a theoretical concept or someone we remember from a long time ago, but you're here in this room and we honor you. Your word tells us when two or three are gathered in your name, you are with them. So Jesus, this is the professional community. We are gathered in your name. We're not gathered based on our preferences. We're not gathered to just get something out of this time. We're not gathered as a means of comfort or convenience. We're not gathered to succumb to our own needs and wants, but we are gathered in your name. So Jesus, we pray that you be honored in all things. You be honored in the teaching of your word. God, I pray that far be it from me to, to just talk eloquently and, 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 and desire for people to change through eloquence, but Lord, that you're placed in my heart, God, an earnest desire and dependence on you for your spirit to move in this place. Jesus, we ask that you'll be honored even in the listening of your word. Your word tells us that, you know, that a man shouldn't just listen to a word and not put it into practice, but we are to be hearers of your word and also obeyers of your word. So Jesus, we pray that you'll be honored even in this time. We lean on you, we look to you. We ask for you to speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Now folks, what comes to your mind when you think about community? Community, what does it mean to you? What does it look to you? I have some pictures up. You know, this is what uh, we often think about community, just people smiling, reading the Bible. Huh? How many of your life groups look like that? So nice, so cute. Next picture. Oh, we have this image, right? Holding hands, holding hands and praying. So beautiful. Oh, we have this image. Whatever this is, right? Just hands joining the scripture and some kinfolky picture, right? Right? Or the next picture, right? What's that? Ooh, wow, food, right? All different colors, right? Uh, there must be a cheese board. You can't have a, you can't have a biblical community with a cheese board, right? Right? Is this what comes to your mind when you think about community? But oftentimes, so this is what community looks like. Uh, next slide. It looks like this. A bit of disagreements, a bit of yelling, finger pointing. It also looks like this. Next slide. Ooh, look at that. Just stuff all over, right? Or the next one. 
Yeah, this is me after most life groups, just healed over and like, oh my gosh, that took so long. Why did they stay so late? I love them, but I love sleep. Or the next one, this is the most triggering. Oh my gosh, rings on my wooden table. Come on, Christians, use a coaster. Amen, I have a witness. And so, you know, with those pictures, right, you know, when we think of community, there's an ideal of community, but there's also the messy reality of community, right? Community doesn't always look like our ideals or what we picture it to be. It doesn't look like kinfolky kind of table, but it often looks really messy, right? There are interpersonal conflicts, there's mess, you know, there's people not pulling their weight as you desire for them to be. There's people not using coasters and you spend a lot of money on your wooden table. Uh, and all that stuff, you know, offense, bitterness, and needing to forgive. Community is messy. Messy, messy, messy. But I found, you know, that much of discipleship happens in the in-between space, between our ideals of community, what we would like it to be, and the messy reality of community. Discipleship happens in that in-between space as God forms us into a people of love. Now we read that text in Philippians chapter 2, this beautiful text. And Paul in some sense was writing to a church in the midst of a mess. Paul wasn't just offering like theoretical constructs or just like these ethereal things. Paul was addressing a very real situation that was happening in the church of Philippi. Read this in Philippians chapter 4, right? And talking about this church and the conflict they were going through. It says this, Paul, I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche, we spent like, you know, five minutes trying to figure out how to pronounce his name, but most of you didn't go to seminary, so I'll just say whatever name and you'll think it's right. So Syntyche is what I'm going with. To agree in the Lord, right, they had disagreement. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. And so we read in this text, right, there's this disagreement between these two women leaders of the church, and Paul was writing to them with this urgent and earnest uh, kind of language, I urge you to agree with one another, to seize this disagreement. Now, most scholars would believe that the disagreement that we're experiencing in this church wasn't, you know, major kind of theological differences, but it was more secondary preferences surrounding how the church should be ran practices or just minor theological differences. It wasn't just, it wasn't any of the major issues. There wasn't heresy at play. There wasn't apostasy. It was just secondary presence preferences and minor theological issues taking the fall in that community. One commentary says this about that text. Whatever the disagreement was about, it must not have been a major doctrinal issue. Okay, imagine this, right? If it was a major doctrinal issue, Paul would have written to address that very issue. It wasn't something so serious that they compromised the gospel. What's happened here is that the intensity of this disagreement is compromising the gospel, not the issue itself. There's a difference. And so this church that was, you know, band together and yet divided on minor issues, Paul was writing to them and he gives them this encouragement in Philippians 2, chapter 1 to 4. Now I have the text up again, Philippians 2, 1 to 4, read it earlier. Now, you know, when you do like any hermeneutical study or do Bible study, when you see the word therefore, you must ask the question, what is that therefore? Therefore. You will remember this. Right? When you see a therefore, you might ask, what is that therefore? Therefore. 
And as a Bible study, right, and so we, we see that question, and so we, we then look back, right, what is it there for? And so uh, let's look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 27, 28. It says this, whatever happens, right, Paul is speaking to them, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. I think the verse is slightly, right? Yeah, all right. So in chapter one, right, Paul in this instance is giving a vision to Christians, right? To not just hear the gospel, to not just receive the gospel, but to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You have received this great gift of salvation in Christ. And now you ought to live in a manner that is fitting of this beautiful gift to which you have received. And Paul will list down two distinctive traits of people who have received this gospel and now walk in a manner worthy of this gospel. And the two traits are unity and courage. Unity and courage. So he says, one spirit striving together as one for the faith. It talks about this intense, deep unity. And it also says this, that they do so without being frightened, this intense courage. And Paul would say that these two traits that are upon a community that has received the gospel will be assigned to everyone. It will be assigned to everyone that God is indeed at work with them, that something has changed, something has transformed them. And so we look back at what we talked about earlier, this early church who were bore witness, not just in the words they professed, but in the manner to which they lived. We read of this text in Philippians 1, the early church was marked by these two distinctive traits of deep unity, not just surface, pseudo kind of unity, let's agree to disagree, but deep unity and profound courage. And so if Philippians 1, 27, 28 it's the vision to which Paul would paint for the early church. Then Philippians 2, 1 to 4 is the implication or the action. How do you actually live this out? And so I broke down this passage, Philippians 2, 1 to 4, into three uh, calls and three themes. And uh, this will be, will be the outline of my message. We don't get outlines for my message very often, so uh, just, you know, enjoy this one. Huh? Okay, so the, my, my outline is this, right? First off. There's a call to recognize the forces within us that make unity difficult. There's a call to remember the grace of God. And finally, there's a call to resist self-centeredness by embracing the humility of Jesus. We get these three calls and injunctions from the text in Philippians 2. Let me pass this out. First off, recognize the forces within us that make unity difficult. Now, unity, as many of you would know, does not come by us simply saying, let's all get along. Let's all get along. Any of you have children? Yeah. Right? You think you can foster that kind of deep, robust, biblical unity by telling them, like, hey, just get along. La. Doesn't happen, right? And so, you know, sometimes we expect this in the church as well, and it just does not happen, right? Let us do the same thing, right? Why don't you just do the same thing? Let's just agree to disagree. And many times, you know, we, we can do so and give this instruction and we might have unity for all of five seconds and then disunity just breaks out, right? 
Because that's a kind of pseudo-unity. It's, it's a unity that's simply extrinsic. It's a unity that has not you know, begun a deep work in the heart. It's a unity that's not propelled or, or uh, uh, you know, expressed because of an internal value. And many times we think of unity as something that we achieve by simply fixing whatever is happening on the external, right? Let's fix this other guy who doesn't agree with my thing or let's just get everyone to get along, right, by having this common vision statement, common set of values, right? Let's fix the external in order to achieve unity. But Paul is brilliant here, right? He recognizes that the origin point of all this unity is in the motive of our hearts. It's, it, it starts from an internal, intrinsic place, and then it's expressed through our actions and interactions with people around us. And Paul would say this, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Do nothing out of it. This is a totalizing statement, right? Paul is not saying, hey, you know, consider not doing that. Or like, hey, you know, like embrace the process and slowly God will like, you know, get you out of this like dysfunctional, destructive patterns and habits. It's not saying take a time, like, hey, hey, work it out. Paul is strong here. He's saying, don't do that. Do nothing out of it. It's a totalizing statement. But when was the last time you heard someone saying that, you know, over the last couple of weeks, I've just been working on my vain conceit. <laughs> like I have this like spiritual stronghold of vain conceit. I just need to fix it, right? This vain conceit. When was the last time any of you said that? If you did, you should have my job because... I've not considered this until I read it this week. I was like, oh man, vain conceit, right? The, the language is a bit weird here, right? Can we agree? Vain conceit, what does it mean? Right, the, the word vain conceit is one Greek word, is kinodoxia, and it's a combination of two Greek words, and the words are empty and glory. Do nothing out of empty glory. It's as if to say that people struggle with this emptiness of glory this kind of glory deficit. Now, glory in scripture is this kind of weight and heaviness, this kabot, right? This sense of value, worth, intrinsic purpose. People struggle with this emptiness of glory. Now, this might seem like a very abstract concept, but maybe you can humor me and complete this verse, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is this to say that we were created for a glory, we were designed to have it as a people, but because of our brokenness and sin, we have fallen short of it, a glory deficit. This results in the fundamental brokenness and insecurity of the soul because we know we were made for so much more, and yet we do not have it. And what, what is the human condition? We try to medicate this emptiness of glory with human accomplishment, with ability, with achievement. The Bible does such a good job in diagnosing the human condition, far better than psychologists. The Bible speaks right into the default mode of the human heart to medicate this emptiness of glory. It's a result of brokenness and sin. Now, a term that was used to describe sin for much of church history is this Latin term, incavatus. It's first used by Augustine and then by Luther in the Protestant Reformation. And this Latin word describes a life lived inward rather than outward for God and others. It's a love turned in on oneself. It's a love collapsing 
into oneself. Now, this doesn't sound all that bad, right? Because we live in a culture, in a world that has normalized this kind of self-love, right? It promotes and celebrates it as a kind of self-love, accepting oneself, being at peace with oneself. And these are all, you know, good cultural goals in our world today. Now, Martin Luther would describe incubators as such. Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts. But it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. This is in Covetus. In essence, what he's saying is that this kind of self-love can turn even the most noble and pure of pursuits into something fundamentally for self-gain and gratification. Stuff like worship, prayer, serving, these noble and pure pursuits turn into something of gratification for the flesh. And even though the outward action can appear sacrificial and noble, it is fueled by an obsession with oneself, one's happiness, one's reputation. And so Paul would say here, don't use the church to medicate to fulfill your glory deficit. Do nothing out of vain conceit. Don't use the church community, the church structure, the church programs, the people in the church to fulfill this glory deficit. And you will say this, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is an interesting term because it was not used uh, you know, anywhere in the world uh, prior to the New Testament except for uh, Aristotle's political. And uh, in that, in that you know, thing, it talks about one of the causes of war is the power-hungry ambition of politicians. Right? Politicians would lie, cheat, and steal to get ahead. This greedy grasp for public office to use unjust means to get a position. This is the only time that this word selfish ambition was used in that world, in that context. Used to describe politicians, that, that sense of ambition that, that wouldn't stop short of stepping on another in order to get ahead. Now, we have explored this theme a couple of times already, but you know, ambition is fundamentally a good thing. Passivity isn't godly. But Paul would talk about you know, a, a, a kind of dark side of ambition, this selfish ambition. That is what he's talking about. This is ungodly. C.S. Lewis had this to comment about ambition. He talks about this. Ambition, it isn't wrong for an actor to want to act his part as well as it can be possibly acted. But the wish to have his name in bigger type than the other actors is a bad one. What we call ambition usually means the wish to be more conspicuous or more successful than someone else. It is this competitive element in it that is bad. It is perfectly reasonable to want to dance well or to look nice, but when the dominant wish is to dance better or look nicer than the others, when you begin to feel that if the others dance as well as you or look as nice as you, that, you, that, that, that will take all the fun of it, then you are going wrong. And so just from Lewis's kind of paragraph, we see two facets of worldly selfish ambition, that of domination and recognition. Dominating others and recognition for doing it. That's the heart of selfish ambition. We want to win. It's not just satisfied doing a good job. We want to be 
better than everyone else. And we want the whole world to know that we are doing so. We want to crush it. We want to crush people. To fulfill one selfish desire at the expense of others. You all laugh because, you know, you all often say, I'm crushing it. Like, who are you crushing? What is it? Right? What is it? People are. This desire to dominate and be recognized for it, Paul would say, would bring destruction to the Christian community. Selfish ambition. James 3, 14 to 16 says this, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote, wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. I love, you know, this like air quotes, you know, in, 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 in the text, this kind of wisdom. Because selfish ambition often masquerades itself as a kind of wisdom. You look wise to the majority of culture, but deep within you, in your heart, its motives are out of sync with the way of Jesus. Sin Eugene Peterson, this short line, says this, centering life in the insatiable demands of the ego is the sure path to doom. Is the sure path to doom. Living for the self, living in gratification for the self, fulfilling this glory deficit on our own, living a kind of ambition that's our sing the way of Jesus that seeks to dominate others and be recognized for it, is a sure path to doom. Now, Andreas Varro is this artist who does pieces that are kind of critique of modern culture. And here's one of his pieces. I have it up. It's a picture, yeah. So it's a picture of a mom with a baby, thumbs up all around. And it's, it's a critique on, on social media. And it's a critique on using, you know, what is pure, noble, something as beautiful as motherhood to gratify, to satisfy that glory Deficit, taking what is noble, pure, and rightfully self-sacrificial and turning it for personal gain. What a reflection on a culture. And then here's another one. This is a bit more funny. Talks about, this, is, this is the end of human civilization. When they dig us up 2,000 years from now, this is probably what they'll dig up. It's like, what went wrong? What went wrong with human society? That is what went wrong. Now, this might not be the most fitting story to share, but I think it kind of illustrates uh, a point on a contrast of two kinds of ambition or motives of the heart. When I first got saved, I got saved at uh, 10 years old. 10 years old, I said the sinner's prayer for the first time. It was in, my, in the house of my tuition teacher. Uh, and after I said the prayer, you know, I, I went back home and I went back the next day and she had uh, bought for me this Bible. It's a New Living Testament Bible. It was like yay big. It was a thick Bible. And uh, she did this beautiful thing where she just pasted post-its all through the Bible. And uh, each post-it had like something along the lines of like, when you're scared, pray this psalm. When you're afraid, you know, pray this psalm. When you lack wisdom, pray this thing. And so there was like post-its all over the Bible. And, I, and it, was, it was something that I treasure deeply and greatly. And she went through you know, extreme lengths to uh, be able to do that. And uh, it was something that has blessed me to today. Now, fast forward uh, some, gosh, five years, I know, six years, you know, seven years, seven years, uh, okay, seven years, uh, you know, since I received that Bible at 10 years old, you know, I was uh, 15 uh, years old, and um, wait, my math is all messed up, <laughs> five, what am I doing? I promise I, I went to school, I promise. Uh, some five years down the road, right? 
you know, at that point in time, I wasn't attending church. I, I, I wasn't a professed Christian. But let me tell you, I was very into this Christian girl. Very into this Christian girl. And like, you know, I, I really, really like, you know, went through extreme lengths to try to you know, chase this Christian girl. And, uh, and you know, we would uh, go out, uh, you know, platonically every now and then. And, uh, and often, you know, when we you know, kind of set a meeting place, I would on purpose get there at least five to ten minutes before she did. And then when she came there, you know, because I knew she went to church, I knew she was a pious Christian. I had this, like, Bible with me, and I would, like, be reading the Bible, and then she'll come out and it's like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? I was like, just reading the Bible. Reading the Bible. It's, it's just what I do. It's what I do. And, and because the Bible is so big, I couldn't fit it into, like, that small kind of sling bag. So I carried the Bible, like, I was like, this, like, preacher, you know, wherever we went, and... And this, like, huge Bible, right? Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's my call and all that kind of stuff, right? But uh, no, it didn't. <laughs> I married somebody else. It, it did not work. Um, <laughs> so, you know, here you have this contrast, right? My teacher, right, with this, like, amazing, amazing heart, right? And just wanting to bless me and just wanting to see me flourish in Christ. Uh, just went out of her way, you know, to prepare this Bible for me. Here I was, using something as pure, noble, and beautiful as reading God's word to pick up chicks. Uh, and so, <laughs> now Paul identified these two characteristics vain conceit and a selfish ambition, something that's rooted in the love of self, as utterly incompatible and destructive to the community of faith. Folks, the greatest challenge for our discipleship. Is the centrality of ourself. When we put ourselves as the center of the universe, everything revolves around our preferences, our wants, our comforts. That is the greatest challenge to our discipleship. Bonhoeffer said this when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. If we do not deny ourselves, we will ultimately deny Jesus. You cannot be full of the love of Jesus and be full of yourself at the same time. That was a bit harsh. I love you. Barbara Brown Taylor says this, the hardest spiritual work in the world is to love the neighbor as the self, to encounter another human being, not as, as someone you can use, change, fix, help, save, enroll, convince, or control, but simply as someone who can spring you from the prison of yourself if you allow it. So read there, others, community, people around you are a gift to you to spring you out of the prison of self. The human heart bends toward the self, bends toward wanting to use others to meet our own needs, wants, preferences, to get ahead. That is the glory deficit. But God gives us the gift of community such that we may be liberated from the disease of the heart. Christian community or Christianity is about love. And folks, love requires other people. And so there's no mature faith isolated from the Christian community. Folks, to remove yourself from the church and community is to commit yourself to spiritual maturity. I'll say that again. (laughs) To remove yourself from the church, from community, to have this kind of like me and Jesus kind of conquer the world spirituality is to commit yourself to spiritual immaturity. Because it's impossible to grow into a person of love 
you don't have people on your right and left to just poke poke you a bit. And so, uh, moving down to the rest of text, how do we build this kind of love, this kind of agape love? We start off with this call to remember the grace of God. Remember the grace of God. Folks, when we suffer from spiritual forgetfulness, we can very well judge the goodness of God on the moment and not the long history of His faithfulness. Remembering who God is and what He has done for us is one of the most important parts of our discipleship. And one of the great schemes of the enemy is to cause us to forget. Now hear me. Satan does not need us to deny God. He only needs us to forget him and his grace toward us. We often forget God when our memories are distorted through things like prosperity, anxiety, or preoccupation with ourselves. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the children of Israel forgetting God in moments of abundance, fear, trying to put their will and solutions above his. Preacher uh, talks about this spiritual, slow spiral of spiritual forgetfulness. It starts off with callousness, that we do not hold uh, the work of God, the grace of God, His intervention with sincerity of heart. We are callous with it. Then we get distracted by prosperity, anxiety, by preoccupation of self, by just stuff that happens in life. And then when push comes to self, we disobey God, leads to a hardened heart, and then we gradually abandon God. Now, anybody, folks, can fall into this spiral. It begins with forgetfulness, letting the work of God fade from our hearts. Coming back to the text in Philippians, Philippians 2, we can so easily glance past the words of Paul. But I'd like to put it to you that these are some of the most revolutionary, soul-satisfying realities in all of human existence. It talks about union with Christ. Right? If there's any encouragement from union with Christ, talks about comfort from His love, talks about common sharing the Spirit, talks about tenderness and compassion, union in Christ. If you unite yourself with Jesus, there's a well inside of you that will water your spirit. Jesus would get up on the last and greatest day of the feast and say, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. And out of their bodies, out of their, their souls would flow rivers of living water, a well inside of you that will never run dry. When we're united to Christ, we get this kind of divine encouragement that flows from our innermost being. Comfort from His love. The love of God brings comfort to us. That word comfort in Greek is to speak closely and intimately with someone. God is not just a far away theory of reality. He is near, He is close. He offers us comfort in our pain, in our weakness, in our struggle and trial. Common sharing in the Spirit. Folks, do you know that you get to share in the Holy Spirit? You get to share in the Holy Spirit of God. Your dead spirit was made alive by the Holy Spirit, His renewing power. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is God's promise to you that He'll never leave you or forsake you. Then you get a spirit of adoption within you that takes you from an orphan, someone who's wounded and unwanted, into one who is chosen and accepted by God, to which you cry out, Abba, Father. Then when you don't know how to pray to God, the Spirit helps you in prayer. Common sharing in the Spirit. The last thing, tenderness and compassion. What beautiful words to describe the heart of God toward us. It's a heart of tenderness and compassion. That word compassion is this unique word. It, it, it only pertains and is exclusive to this idea of divine compassion. Not compassion as we, the way we see in the world, but a divine 
compassion. This, folks, is the foundation and lens to which we built the biblical community. Once we had a glory deficit, now God has restored that glory through his son. Marissa Wolf says this, that Christ came to transform us from never enough people to more than enough people. That through his poverty, we may become rich. Sadly, the gospel for many is this ticket to afterlife. I hear the gospel, I receive it, and I have this like address in heaven. 777 eternal way, whoever have you. And along with this line of thinking, the gospel is simply reduced to this idea of atonement, a theology of atonement, right? You know, when the essence of the gospel is stripped down to the afterlife or to a glorious future reality, strictly to an individual personal decision of faith, but this is not what Jesus would describe as kingdom come. Surely the gospel is good news, but good news about what? And it's my conviction, folks, and I love to share this conviction with you, that the gospel at its core is not merely the good news of soteriology of salvation. I wrote it in and I know that I would have trouble pronouncing it. The gospel at its core is centrally about the story and victory of Jesus. The risen and throned Lord is our good news. And further, the gospel does not just have implications on where we end up after we die. It has implications in the here. And now, George Alden Ladd would say this, the gospel must not only offer a personal salvation and future life to those who believe, it must also transform all of the relationships of life here and now, and thus the kingdom of God to prevail in all the world. Here's the narrative of the gospel. Humor me for just a moment. You folks and I, at one time, were enemies of the living God. We're enmity with him. We are objects of God's wrath. Our sin not only grieves him, but angers him. Rather than being the good people that Jesus would choose, the Bible tells us that we're enemies of God, dead in our sin, in our trespasses. We hate God in our very nature. We wouldn't be the people cheering Jesus on in that day. We would be the ones crucifying him. We are way worse off than we know. We are more further than God than we can comprehend. But God, instead of retaliating against us, will treat us with loving kindness. He sends His Son, lays down His life for us, not just as an act of kindness, but as an act of reconciliation. That we will be transformed from former enemies to ones who now belong in the kingdom of God. Friends, sons and daughters of the living God, the family of God. The gospel is all about turning enemies into friends. In essence, it's about reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. In light of the gospel, in light of the election, in light of what Jesus has done for you, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. A worldly point of view only attributes value and worth based on accomplishment, how much you have in the bank, what you're able to do for me. But we are to regard each other not from a worldly perspective, but embodying and carrying the mindset of Christ. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. He was committed to us and he has now committed to us the message of reconciliation. The message of reconciliation. 
See, God is not simply in the business of just cleansing our souls. He's in the business of tearing down walls and creating a new family. One could argue that the primary fruit of the gospel is not about you going to heaven, as great as that is. But rather it's this sledgehammer that tears down the walls that used to divide us and forming this new family with the most unlikely of people, the most uncommon uh, the most kind of uncommon community that stands itself as a witness to the world that God is alive and He is at work. And this is only possible through the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Reconciliation. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, we read this about the early community, Jesus' community. It says this, that Jesus called His 12 disciples to Him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, notice, you know, as I read through the names of uh, the 12 apostles, only two had a descriptor attached to their name. That were, that were, they are Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Now, we know much about tax collectors, right? We've talked about tax collectors a couple of times already, but who are the zealots? Who are the zealots? Now, the zealots were a violent insurgent sect of first century Jews who would use guerrilla tactics to fight Rome, right? The, the, the Hebrew word for this group of men is this word, sicario, sicario, which loosely translates to dagger men because they would hide daggers beneath their cloaks and assault unsuspecting Roman officials, soldiers, or sympathizers of Rome. Right? And so I have a picture up. You know, this is what you know, Sicarios would look like. They would just hide dagger within their clothes. And when a Roman official was, was you know, uh, you know, not on guard, they would kill him. Now, take a moment to imagine this, right? You have Matthew, the tax collector, who was literally on the payroll of Rome, who worked for Rome, right? He's collecting taxes for Rome, you know, Romans loved him, Jews hated him. And then you had Simon the Zealot, dagger man, absolutely hated Rome. Not just in thought, right? He would actually kill people. And you had these two individuals, one who, loved, one who was loved by Rome and one who actually hated Rome, living together, loving one another, existing in this thing called community. How is that even possible? Jesus would put together this little community from across the spectrum and say to them, what unites you today is more than common interests, it's more than political ideology, it's more than hobbies or habits. What unites you here today is far more profound than whatever social groups you are part of. What unites you here today is me, what I've done for you, what I'm doing in you. Christ unites us. Look at the person on the right and left. You have more in common with them than any social group that you're part of. That's the basis of our unity. The last call we read about in the text is to resist self-centeredness and embrace the humility of Jesus. The humility of Jesus. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, humility is never used in a positive light. It's more often the idea of being humiliated. 
But when Christians reclaim that term, they presupposed some kind of dignity, which is to say that you can't humiliate me because of the dignity that I now have in Christ. I choose to humble myself. And so we think of that story where Jesus, who knows the Father, who is loved by her, and knowing where he was going after his death, Jesus would gird himself a towel and wash the feet of his disciples. Our humility is not based on a kind of groveling or, you know, to push ourselves lower such that people may like us and think that we're pious. Our humility finds its roots and foundation in the dignity that we have now been afforded through the atoning work of Jesus. So about being secure in who God has made you to be, what Jesus has done for you, that you no longer need to defend yourself, prove yourself, you get to be bowed low. You get to offer yourself in a self-giving way. It's not like, hey, everyone's better than me, I just suck. It's the difference between humility and false humility and groveling. C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, what humility looks like. He says this, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he'll be what, be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Right? I am a nobody, you know, I don't have any ability. Also, Jesus. Praise him. Probably all you would think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. In essence, it's this orientation toward others. Instead of being fixated on your own preference, one's needs, desire to look good before people, it's bent towards others. In light of what Christ has done for you, humility would say, Put the needs of others before your own. Put the needs of your spouse before your own. Put the needs of your children before your own. Put the needs of your parents before your own. Put the needs of this community before your own. Put the needs of the gospel before your own. Paul has this instruction in the text when he says this, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. That word there, you know, like-minded, one spirit, one mind. It's not a call for all of us to think alike or to hold onto a particular set of beliefs. It's not so much in thought. It's not for all of us to agree on the nuances of eschatology, to agree on a certain timeline to which you know, apocalyptic events are going to pan out. It's not for us to agree who the Antichrist is. It's not about coming to an agreement on thought. But that word there, it means mindset or posture of the heart. Have the same mindset. Have the same posture of heart. Read down further in Philippians 2, and Paul would talk about this mindset to which we all are to have. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality of God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Greek word to sum up, you know, this pouring out of Christ's divinity is the word kenosis. Kenosis is to define our community, is to be a mindset to which we carry. Kenosis. Sounds like Star Wars, right? You know, if Jesus was a Jedi, it would be, he'll be only one kenosis. That's what I think. Ha, 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 ha. 
Uh, it's not my notes, so it's all off the cuff. So, you know, it's pure and right and true. In our relationships, in community, we are to follow in Christ's example. Self-giving, self-sacrificial, pouring out himself for the sake of others. This is the mindset to which we are all to carry in the biblical community. Because nothing short of that will, will cause the community to stand in days of trial. Put aside selfish ambition, vain conceit. Embrace the humility of Jesus. We'll circle back to that, that instance in the church of Philippi, right? This two women leaders who are arguing about fringe theological preferences, about secondary preferences, wants, and desires. And Paul would say to them, instead of saying, no, you are right and you are wrong and this is the right thing to believe, he would say, agree, agree. Put aside this disunity and agree. What unites us is far greater than what divides us and separates us. Guard against division. Preserve this unity, this bond of peace. Titus 3, verse 9 to 11. I know, whole lot of content, but I love you in Jesus' name, and I give you, I give you content. Feel my love? Yes. Titus 3, verse 9 to 11. It's an obscure verse, but it's going to hit home. Are you ready? It says this, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. So much to pass out in this text. Where do you see yourself? Are you a person that loves and treasures and values unity, are willing to give of yourself in order to preserve this unity? Or you're a person who's divisive, who will let your, your own secondary preferences take the fore in the biblical community. And unless people succumb and conform to what you desire, you'll keep going at it until you get what you want. And what you will have at the end of the day is not the kingdom of God, it's the kingdom of self. Sorry. Sometimes I get tripped up when I get a bit serious. But <laughs> Paul would say, pursue unity because that is what would make his joy complete. Make my joy complete by being of the like, of same mind, like-minded. There's no joy in the heart of God where there's disunity among the people of God. Jesus would say this, right? If you have a kind of disagreement or offense or you carry something in your heart against a brother or sister, and if you're in the midst of an act of worship, stop what you're doing. Put down your gift. Go and be reconciled and then come back to worship. And we see, right, in, in an almost very confronting way, Jesus would prioritize us being right with each other above the act of worship. Isn't this confronting to even see and consider Jesus values the integrity in our interpersonal relationships. We are sitting here and saying that my relationship with God is just rock solid, but I just hate people. I don't think it's possible. One of the first things that God will tell you to do when you draw near to him is that, hey, go and fix those issues and be reconciled to people. Because offense is just, just something that can't stick and thrive in a loving relationship with God, with Jesus. 
Now, folks, God loves us so much. He does. And out of his abundant love toward you, he wants to give you something more than your preferences. He wants to give you love. Love for other people. Love in its truest form. Love. One final quote before I bring this to a landing, shortly. Stanley Howard says this, the most creative social strategy we can offer is the church. Here we show the world a manner of life the world can never achieve through social coercion or governmental action. We serve the world by showing it something that it is not, namely a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. Here's my point. No, we, we all need each other. We are the vessels that will help sanctify one another. To only be around people with your preferences is not to be in a church, it's to be in a social club. Jesus would say that by this, they will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Jesus ties the proclamation of the gospel to the way we treat one another. Our disunity undermines the credibility of our witness. The world will simply go, that is just a fuss. Yeah, they talk big about the gospel, but look at them. Look at the way they live. Look at their love for one another. It doesn't exist. But Jesus would say, our witness is tied to our ability to love each other well. Amen. Now, close off, you know, I have some practical stuff for you, and uh, I'm a big fan of this book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together, and this is what the sermon is titled after, and uh, we'll talk about some concepts that he brings up to the book. But in his book, he talks about these seven principles of self-examination, or seven practices to which will foster the biblical community, for us to embrace the humility of Jesus, to live in accordance to the verse that we read. He talks about seven practices, and I have them out on the screen. It says this, Christians should hold their tongues, refusing to speak uncharitably, about a Christian brother. Second, cultivate the humility that comes from understanding that they, like Paul, are the greatest of sinners and can only live in God's sight by His grace. Do you remember God's grace? Do you remember what He has done for you? The third, to grow to listen long and patiently, to understand a fellow Christian's needs, not be quick to just offer quick fix solutions or change the subject, but to listen long, patiently. Four, refuse to consider the time and calling so valuable that they cannot be interrupted to help with unexpected needs, no matter how small or menial. You consider yourself like oh so uber important that you can't just stop and help. Five, bear the burden of their brothers and sisters in the Lord, both by preserving their freedom, by forgiving the sinful abuse of their freedom. Six, declare God's word to their fellow believers when they need to hear it. It's to resist this idea of pseudo-unity, a non-confrontational, peaceable community where we just let things slide and we, not, we don't confront sinful abuses, we don't confront dysfunctional patterns and habits. Our unity has to be built on something other than just harmony. It has to be built on the intense love that we have for one another in Christ Jesus. And sometimes love looks like the courage to confront when it's needed. And seven is this, understand that Christian authority is characterized by service and does not call attention to the person who performs that service. So if at any point in the life of church comes to a point where 
I come in after worship, have a security detail, escort me, and I sit in a room, you know, and I don't talk to any of you because I know I'm special. That's a good time to leave the church. You have my permission. Amen. I'd like to close off with a final story. Uh, you have time in you with, for one final story? Yeah. Yes, not that you have a choice, but... Uh. <laughs> now, there's no single community I find more inspiring than the Moravian community. The Moravian community. I'd just like to give you a brief history on the Moravians. Now, Count Zinzendorf uh, is the founder of the Moravian community. It's a German noble, really affluent man who uh, at one point either inherited or bought a piece of land from his grandmother. In the 1700s, uh, in Germany, there's this wave of religious and cultural persecution. And Zinzendorf had this vision of taking that land to which he inherited and could use to you know, make himself more affluent. And he had this vision of taking this land and using it as a place to house Christian communities in the midst of oppression and persecution. And so a number of people showed up to the piece of land to settle to build community. And it came from a wide range of theological backgrounds to settle in this place called Hernhut. Community was uh, tremendously diverse and divided. There were Calvinists, there were Armenians, there were high church people, low church people. You think it, they have it. Uh, and you think, right, you know, based on their common experience of being persecuted, they'll be united as people. But when they first got there, they were immensely divided. And it weighed heavily on Zinzendorf's heart, right? How do we see, right, this biblical community united in Jesus? And so over a period of weeks, he went door to door to every single family and, and a couple hundred people. He basically pleaded with them, like, can we put aside our differences for the sake of Jesus? The fire of God will never fall on the divided altar. Let us unite for Christ. And over time, he won the hearts of everyone in the community. And on August 13, 1727, they gathered together, all of them, for a communion service. And after they had united their hearts and taken in communion, the presence of God fell upon them in a really tangible way. It said that like, for a period of almost 12 hours, they did not know whether they were in heaven or on earth because God's presence was so thick and strong. Hernhut, if you know it geographically, is not the most strategically located. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's not near a city or a financial hub by any means. So they had this outpouring, right, on the community, and they asked the question, how can we steward this? How can we steward this move? The fire cannot go out on the altar. And so they started 24-7 prayer. And early stories talked about how they, they had a lottery, you know, they put in names of the different families and people, and like, you know, people just threw up slots, right? Or like, ooh, I just want a 2 p.m., boom, you have 3 a.m. And so people just took up slots, right, as this community united in spite of the differences and sustained the fire of God the outpouring of the Spirit. And they were able to sustain this for over a hundred years. And every time the power of God began to wane, God would begin to move upon the hearts of the young people and they would step up. The next generation would rise up and carry the mantle. And God was beginning to speak to them and said, to take this fire beyond what we experience in this community to the nations of the world. And they heard about an island that was in the British Isles. And in order to get to that island, you had to be a slave. There was no other way to get there. And so the story goes, two young men sold themselves into slavery to bring the gospel to the island. There was this moving moment as the community gathered to send these two men, these two boys away to the island. They said, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. It's a communal cry for Jesus to receive his full reward. 
And they go onto that island and they see this massive revival. Tons of swept into the kingdom. Over 2,000 people came to Christ and became this kind of model community. The power of God comes uh, upon this small community and they commit to this shared discipleship practice. Let us all pray together. Let us all sustain the power of God together. And another one of these communities uh, was, was sent uh, to the United, Na- uh, United States to bring the missions movement there. And they were on a ship. And the story goes, there was a terrible storm and it looked for certain that the ship was going to go down. And on the ship, there was another passenger by the name of John Westy. And he said he realized that the Moravians on, who were on the ship, right, in spite of the storm, in spite of certain death, were not shaken. They had this profound sense of peace. And it captivated him. He said, I must have that. And so, sorry goes that Wesley actually attended a Moravian Bible study. It's an encounter with God where his heart became strangely warm, right? That age old story. The Moravians also had these all night prayer meetings, and there was one year's Eve where 60 of them were gathered to pray. So, John Wesley was there in that prayer meeting, a small prayer meeting, and there was another man by the name of George Whitfield. And about three o'clock in the morning on that New Year's Day, the presence of God came down upon that community and many of the men in the room could not stand. And Whitfield would move over to the United States and he would hold these evangelistic meetings where he would preach with power and authority and he would spark what we now know to be the Great Awakening. It all came from this 60-person prayer meeting. William Carey, who is called the father of the modern mission, was so moved by the work of Moravians that he went against his denominational norms and pioneered a missions movement in India. And I have the last one. William Wilberforce. We all know him, right? He's in parliament. He's raging against slavery as a statesman. And one of the arguments that, were, that, that was made against you know, the releasing of slaves was that nobody could do so because the slaves would just turn around and kill their masters. It was just unsafe. And Wilbur's force had heard about an island where 2,000 slaves came to Jesus and it became this alternative, alternate community. And it worked in a God-honoring way. And it was able to point to those two men who had brought the gospel to the 2,000 who had become almost like a reference point for the abolishment of slavery in Britain. My point. This small community whose numbers this didn't pass three to 400 had the power of God come upon them they channeled it into shared discipleship practices, praying, living one another, putting aside selfish ambition, vain conceit, pursuing unity. And it sparked one of the greatest revivalists in history, John Wesley. It inspired one of the greatest evangelists in history, George Whitfield. It inspired one of the greatest missionaries in history, William Carey. It inspired one of the greatest politicians in history, William Wilberforce. And all of this traces back to the people of God coming together and putting aside their differences, pursuing Jesus and practicing his way together. And the question I'd like to leave with you after that 10-minute spiel is that, do you want to be such a community? Because we can. We can. And it starts off when we do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit. We pursue unity, true biblical unity, not pseudo-unity, putting aside our preferences, our wants, following Jesus together, well, wholeheartedly. Because the church is not going to be built by the quality of our programs, but by the strength of our love for one another. The church is not going to be defined by the preferences of a few, but by the love of many. The church is not going to be built by the finances of one or two, but by everyone putting their hand together, giving sacrificially. It's not going to be built by one or two, but by the sacrifices of many.
So this is the vision I'd like to cast this day. Let us pursue unity. Let us pursue unity such that God's blessing may be upon us as a people. We see His kingdom invade our world. Amen. Stand. Peace. The clock says I went 20 minutes over, but I think the clock is lying. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for, uh, for listening and uh, leaning in. Folks, in the, in the interest of time, I'll just get right to it. You know, I just feel uh, over the weeks that, that God wants to speak to a couple of groups of people. I'd love for you to respond in whatever way you feel fit. First group of people I'd love to pray for, you know, as we did last week, is people you know, who have their vision of community marred and tainted through the years. Let us be honest, living in the messy web of interpersonal relationships is like walking on a minefield. Offense is just looming and around us all the time. It's so easy to get burnt, it's so easy to get disappointed, it's so easy to get hurt and disillusioned. And oftentimes, you know, what God does in those moments is that He reminds us that people are just imperfect. We all need the grace of Jesus. We all need to extend love and hospitality and patience and understanding. He forms us to be a people whose love is not fickle, but whose love is proven. But no doubt, it's been painful. You're hurt. But thank God in Jesus, we find comfort. Thank God in Jesus, we find encouragement. Thank God in Jesus, we find healing. So if that is you this day, I believe that the grace of God is here to bring a kind of healing balm to your soul, to your heart. Where there's disillusion, God will birth forth new vision. Where there's offense, God will liberate you from that prison and give you the grace to forgive. And where there's passivity, God will move upon your heart to engage once again. And our group of people I like to pray for it's this. You heard about this vision of biblical unity. You heard about how God treasures and values this call unity. You heard about our call to guard against division. And yet, admittedly, you have done some stuff to divide people. You've held on to certain preferences that, if left unchecked, constantly expressed, will just seek to divide and destroy the biblical. I believe the grace of God is here. Should you desire to repent? He wants to forgive you. He wants to give you a new vision for how you can carry your preferences. How can you carry that beliefs well in a, a community, in a culture that is richly diverse? He wants to give you a vision for the body of Christ that does not look like one blob. It looks like many members with their different gifts, skill sets, experiences, backgrounds and bands coming together, diverse as they are, but possible because the Spirit unites us as a people. So consider for just a moment, have you been a divisive person? Have you sought to divide the biblical community? Have you sought to have everyone succumb to your preferences, to your band, to your views and to your wants and likes? God wants to confront you today in a loving way in a loving way because when you hold on to these things you just can't be full of love and full of the spirit if you're so full of yourself he wants to fill you afresh this day so if eyes closed and head bowed you know, I 
want us to take a moment and pause this moment of time and just consider the words that we heard. Not from me, but from Scripture, from the Spirit. God, where we are broken and in need of healing, where we have offended and chosen to recluse ourselves, give us grace. Where we have been divisive, where we've held on to our preferences, almost with a kind of arrogance in the biblical community, confront us this day. Help us embrace the humility of Jesus. Help us pour ourselves out in a new way. Let's just take a moment and commune with God and have Him confront us in a loving way even as we go back to worship together. Amen. God bless you.